Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We return again this morning to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we find ourselves in the middle of a collection of Paul's concluding exhortations, a set of of rapid-fire commands to the saints in the church at Philippi. And what unites those commands thematically is that they are the means of achieving the spiritual stability that Paul has called them to in chapter 4, verse 1. As a conclusion to all that he's warned them about in chapter 3, the legalism of the Judaizers, the error of the perfectionists, and the, the sensuality of the antinomians, and especially in light of, at the end of chapter 3 there, the Philippians' present citizenship in heaven, and in light of their glorious future at Christ's return, in light of all of that, Paul then culminates in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And if we're in a right spirit here this morning, the prospect of spiritual stability is attractive to us. Those of us who belong to Christ and who are rightly related to Him deeply desire to be consistently growing into greater and greater spiritual maturity. We want to be spiritually stable. We want to be the kind of enduring, unwavering, uncompromising people that are faithful to the Lord and to His Word, even in the midst of great opposition. We don't want to be the kind of people who are characterized by instability, whose Christian life is littered with fits and starts, highs and lows, peaks and valleys. Now, it's true that because of the principle of indwelling sin, some degree of that is unavoidable. But as much as we can, is it not true? We'd like to avoid that. By the grace of God, we want to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We want to stand firm. And so the important question then is, by what means can I attain that spiritual stability? How can I make this holy aspiration a reality in my life? Well, it's just that question that Paul answers in this section of his letter. You'll notice in verse 1 that he commanded the Philippians, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. And then following that statement in verses 2 through 9 come a series of imperatives that make up the means of true biblical steadfastness. If we are to be a people who are spiritually stable, who are standing firm in the Lord, we must be marked by a diligent devotion to unity within the body, verses 2 and 3, by an unyielding pursuit of joy in the Lord, verse 4, by an eminent and demonstrable gentleness of spirit, Verse 5, by both the repudiation of all anxiety and a devotion to thankful prayer in verse 6, and the result of all of that, verse 7, will be that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then in verses 8 and 9, bring it to a conclusion as they center on the importance of right thinking in verse 8, which is the ground of godly living, which is in verse 9. And both of those, godly thinking and godly living, are essential to a life driven by the gospel, which again is Paul's main theme in the book of Philippians. Last time, we examined just the first of those imperatives. In verses 2 and 3, Paul commanded the congregation at Philippi to be diligently devoted to unity within the local body. Then we observe the very high premium that, that Paul placed on unity as he called out two women in the congregation by name, urging Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And by enlisting the help of a man named Syzygus, who is likely a leader in the church, to be a peacemaker between them. We learn from that study that disunity is a grave threat to the stability and steadfastness of any church. And so in a very practical manner... Paul exhorts the Philippians to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But this morning we come to the second of those commands, and it is no less essential for the people of God in our pursuit of gospel-driven spiritual stability. Not only must we be diligently devoted to unity within the body, but we must also be marked 
by an unyielding pursuit of joy in the Lord. If the people of God are to stand firm in the Lord, as Paul prescribes in verse 1, if we're going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, as Paul commands in chapter 1, verse 27, then we must be relentlessly pursuing our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I draw that principle from our text this morning, just one verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, there are a few topics that are more worthy of our study and attention than the topic of Christian joy and rejoicing. Commentator Gordon Fee hits the nail on the head when he writes, Joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience of the gospel. It is the fruit of the Spirit in any truly Christian life, serving as primary evidence of the Spirit's presence. And he goes on to say that unmitigated, untrammeled joy is the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. And the great British expositor Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that nothing was more characteristic of the first Christians than this element of joy. Elsewhere, Lloyd-Jones said, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and a joyful church. And perhaps the great Puritan Richard Baxter said it best when he said, delighting in God. In his word and in his ways is the flower and life of true religion. And yet, in spite of the centrally important place that joy occupies in the Christian life, there is nevertheless widespread confusion about what precisely it means to rejoice in the Lord always. Great numbers of Christians, I've found, have an unbiblical view of joy. Rather than seeing joy as the dominating characteristic of the Christian life, They view it as merely the icing on the cake. For many, joy is a take-it-or-leave-it fruit of the Spirit, a seasonal fruit, maybe. A popular attitude speaks like this. You just do your duty. Be sure to obey God's commands. And if you can do it with joy, that's great. But if you can't, you just make sure that you do your duty no matter how you feel. The feelings, we are told, will follow. And of course, there's a germ of truth there. I know what the people who say such things are getting at when they say that. We are not to be enslaved to our fleshly emotions and feelings. And we're not to sit around and ignore our duties of obedience to Christ until we're struck with some sort of unusual exuberance to go and do it. But neither are we to relegate joy to such a marginal place in the Christian life as those statements make it out to be. The Bible knows nothing of an icing-on-the-cake view of joy and rejoicing. It is, as I mentioned before, the distinctive and dominating characteristic of the Christian life. It is, as Baxter said, the flower and life of true religion. And that teaching absolutely permeates the entire New Testament. And I want you to hear, because of, again, because of the confusion, I want to take time and I want you to hear this staggering emphasis on the centrality of joy in the Christian life as I read a number of texts. Don't try to turn with me or write them all down. Maybe just the references and you can refer to the website and the transcript for later. But just listen to the emphasis here. First, the kingdom of God itself consists in joy. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is atop the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The gospel is good news of great joy, Luke 2.10. The gospel itself, the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was fueled by joy. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Joy characterizes the very beginning of the Christian life. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus describes conversion as a man finding a treasure hidden in a field. And it says, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So it's the beginning of the Christian life. It's also the end of the Christian life. Matthew 25, 21, Jesus describes the welcome of his faithful servants into heaven with the phrase, enter into the joy of your master. Joy is the great end and purpose of prayer. John 16, 24, Jesus commands his disciples, ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. 
Joy is the great end and purpose of Jesus' teachings. John 15, verse 11, he tells the disciples, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is why I'm speaking to you. He says that again in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He says, These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Joy was the distinctive mark of the early church. Acts 13, 52 says, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Joy is the true consequence and companion of saving faith. In Romans 15, 13, Paul says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So it's through faith and along with faith that joy thrives. It's the, as I've said, the dominating characteristic of all true believers. 1 Peter 1, 8. Peter says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy is the inevitable result of serving the Lord. Luke 10, 17 records the great joy of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they returned with joy, it says. Joy is also the very goal of ministry for those ministered to. So not only is it the result for the ministers, but it's the goal for those we're ministering to. Paul says in 2 Corinthians one twenty four describes his ministry by saying, we are workers with you for your joy. And in Philippians one twenty five, he tells the Philippians that he's convinced that he'll remain on in the ministry. He's convinced that he won't die by execution at the hands of Nero Because he's going to continue for your progress and joy in the faith. Joy is what sustains Christians in the midst of suffering and affliction. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, You receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Joy is the result of true Christian fellowship. 1 Thessalonians 3.9, Paul asks his dear friends, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? And finally, joy is the very occupation of heaven itself. As we learn that in Luke 15.10, that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Can there be any doubt, friends, as to the centrality of joy in the Christian life after that? The kingdom of God, the fruit of the Spirit, the gospel itself, the beginning and the end of the Christian life, the goal of prayer, the goal of the word, the goal of ministry, the result of fellowship, the strength to endure suffering, the occupation of heaven. Joy absolutely saturates the pages of Scripture. And in the same way, it must saturate every fiber of your soul and every aspect of your Christian life. Paul knew this. And that's why in these four short chapters, he makes mention of joy or rejoicing no less than 16 times, with two of those occurrences coming in this very verse. As Paul repeats his command to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Such an emphasis on joy in this letter leads Martin Lloyd-Jones to conclude that joy was the thing that Paul desired for these people above everything else, he says. It was their heritage as Christian people. As children of God, it was their birthright, joy was. And so we're going to take the rest of this morning to examine this crown of Christian graces as we are exhorted to it in Philippians 4.4. For one of the 16 occurrences of the terms for joy and rejoicing, it's fitting that at least one whole sermon be devoted to it. We're going to cover a lot of ground, digging deep into what the rest of the Scriptures speak about joy. And so I would just entreat you at the outset to gird up the loins of your mind and prepare yourselves to grapple with the text of Scripture this morning. But we'll hang all of our thoughts on three main headings. First, we'll consider the command to rejoice. Second, we'll consider the constancy of our rejoicing. And finally, we'll consider the cause of our rejoicing. So the command, the constancy, and the cause. Well, in the first place, then, let's consider the command for the Christian to rejoice. Paul commands us, very simply, to rejoice in the Lord always. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to about this command to rejoice is that it is indeed a command. 
I called it an exhortation a moment ago, but that's really less than precise. Neither is Paul making a request, nor merely offering a suggestion as if to say, you know, if you'd really like to make progress in your Christian life, if you really want to be a mature Christian, a sort of upper echelon Christian, well, then you, you might consider diligently pursuing your joy in God. No. He's speaking to all the saints at Philippi, chapter 1, verse 1. And by extension to all Christians today, informing us of our duty. And the form of the Greek is emphatic. It's a a present imperative. And so even if he didn't include the word always at the end of the phrase, the original language would still have the force of be continually rejoicing. And Paul's not doing something unique here. There are numerous other places in Scripture where God's people are commanded to rejoice. Psalm 33.1 opens with the call to sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. The Old Testament equivalent of Philippians 4.4 is Psalm 37.4, where David commands us to delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And Psalm 97.12 calls us to be glad in the Lord, O you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 5.12 calls the disciples to rejoice and be glad when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Command, rejoice and be glad. And in a very similar way, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 commands the churches under his care to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Another imperative. So Scripture makes it emphatically clear that joy is a duty of the people of God. But in spite of that crystal clear emphasis, so many Christians, especially ones them that I talk to, <laughs> not you guys, <laughs> others, continue to believe that joy is some sort of ancillary, incidental footnote to the Christian life. And I'm sure that that response was as old as the commands themselves because Paul feels the need to repeat himself before the end of the verse. It's as if as he sits there and pens this command, he can already hear it. He can already anticipate the objections. Well, well, surely he can't mean rejoice in the Lord always. Doesn't he know what we're going through? And so he repeats himself, anticipating those objections in any and all flavor and says, no, again, I will say rejoice. I love the comment Spurgeon makes on this. He says, Do you not think that this repetition was intended to impress upon them the importance of the duty? Again, I say rejoice. Some of you will go and say, I don't think it matters much whether I'm happy or not. I'll get to heaven, however gloomy I am, if I'm sincere. No, says Paul, Spurgeon writes, that kind of talk will not do. I cannot have you speak like that. Come, I must have you rejoice. I do really conceive it to be a Christian's bounden duty. And so again, I say rejoice. Well, if Scripture is so clear that joy is a Christian duty, we need to clearly understand the nature of it, of true Christian joy, what it is and what it isn't, where it comes from, and so on. So the first thing to say about that is that true Christian joy is not some sort of pasted smile, superficial cheerfulness or peppiness that's indifferent to the painful and difficult circumstances we find themselves in. You know, these people who don't seem to have a social register but think that it's just their job to be very giddy and peppy and happy. (laughs) Martin Lloyd-Jones calls those people the most depressing people in the world. (laughs) I like that. But Paul is not in any way commanding Christians to always manifest an unrealistic perkiness that has no room for weeping with those who weep and mourning over sin. He's not saying something so superficial and skin deep as, don't worry, be happy. But neither is joy merely a superficial emotional response to the circumstances of life so that when things are going well, well, we find it easy to rejoice. And when things aren't going so well, we find it difficult to rejoice. No, that's the world's definition of joy and rejoicing. Their joy is tied to circumstances. Their joy is superficial and skin deep. 
But if there's one thing that Paul has taught us as he writes this letter overflowing with talk about joy and rejoicing as he sits in prison chained 18 inches away from a Roman soldier, it's that true Christian joy is in no way dependent on our circumstances. Joy is not merely a feeling in response to whatever is going on around us. We are not driven to joy. It's much more than that. But I also have to say, joy is not less than a feeling either. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. And I prefer to use the term affection rather than feeling or emotion, but the, tr- the truth is just the same. So many people, when they recognize that Scripture, as we just saw, commands, clearly commands us to rejoice, well, they conclude, well, that must not involve the heart. It must not involve the emotions because they assume God can't command us to feel a certain way. I can't tell you how many times I've read the assertion, joy is not a feeling. It's a decision. It's an act of the will. And again, as I said, I understand where that's coming from in some aspect. I understand that joy is is more than just a feeling, but it is not less than that. And so I'm, again, concerned at how widespread this misconception is that I want to take a moment and prove that to you from Scripture. So turn first to John chapter 16. Jesus is nearing the end of his upper room discourse on the night of his betrayal. And as he's preparing the disciples to live their lives in the absence of his physical presence, he makes an absolutely precious comment in verses 20 to 22. John 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And the key point to observe there is the contrast between joy and rejoicing and grief and sorrow. Jesus is speaking of the sorrow that the disciples will feel when he goes away, but comforts them with the joy that they will experience when they see him again. Now, that contrast is rendered absolutely incomprehensible if joy is not, at least in some measure, a feeling, an affection, emotion, and an inclination of the soul. What are we going to say next, that grief and sorrow aren't feelings? That the joy a woman feels at the birth of her child has nothing to do with emotions? That's not all it has to do with, but it certainly has to do with that. Another way to observe the reality that joy is not less than emotion is to see how frequently it's paired with the command to be glad, especially in the Psalms. Take Psalm 32, verse 11, for for example. You don't have to turn there. But David simply says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So to rejoice in something, it's paired with being glad in that something, to be so delighted in it that it, it brings about feelings of gladness and satisfaction. And then that is connected to shouting for joy. That can't just simply can't be talking about a mere decision, something that's no more than uh, an exertion of willpower, though that might be involved. When was the last time you were depressed and you said to yourself, I'm going to decide to shout for joy? It, It just doesn't work like that. This is speaking about an affection, an overwhelming sense of of pleasure and delight that evokes happy shouting. One more. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this already in our long list from before. Peter is writing about the personal experience of all Christians in this opening section of his letter. And in verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes this magnificent sentence. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Just listen to that. Which of you can say, okay, I'm going to bear down, I'm going to exercise my willpower, and irrespective of my feelings, I'm going to decide to have 
inexpressible joy. Again, it just doesn't work that way. Friends, if we can tear down our prejudices regarding how we may have thought about emotions, prejudices we've erected because we understand the very real dangers of emotionalism, prejudices we've erected because we know that our own affections fall so far short of the biblical standard. And if we just listen to the language of these verses, it becomes plain how foolish it is to seek to kidnap joy from the realm of the affections. You greatly rejoice with Joy inexpressible and full of glory. No. Jonathan Edwards took this very verse as his principal text when he wrote that marvelous treatise, The Religious Affections. And the thesis of that great work, the, the conclusion he drew from this very text, from 1 Peter 1.8, was that true religion, he said, in great part consists in holy affections. True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. And I love what Pastor John says about this. He he keeps it simple. He says, Christian joy is not an emotion on top of an emotion. It's not a feeling on top of a feeling. It is a feeling, but it's a feeling on top of a fact. It's an emotional response to what I know to be true about my God. So it is an emotional response, but it's an emotional response not to some sort of fleeting, you know, whimsy, but to the rock-solid truth, unchanging and immutable, about God himself who does not change. And so God commands us, in response to the truths that we know about him, to feel, friends. And we can't be scared of that. The Christian is not merely someone who's made a decision for Jesus and cleaned up his life a little bit via some behavior modification. Becoming a Christian means spiritual heart surgery. It means receiving a new heart, being given new affections, new desires that are in line with holiness, that are in line with what God wants, such that we do not only do justly, but we love mercy, Micah 6, 8 such that we would not only be givers, but cheerful givers, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Such that pastors and elders would not just shepherd the flock, 1 Peter 5, 2, but that they would shepherd the flock willingly and eagerly, Peter says. These are commands of the, of the affections of the heart. God's Word contains commands that cover the full range of human emotions. We're not to covet, but we're to be content. We are to hope in God. We are to fear God. We're to experience the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. We're to long for, to earnestly desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in with respect to salvation. We're to be tender-hearted, right? Forgiving one another, Ephesians 4. We're to come before God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Again, aimed all at the affections. And that makes the conclusion inescapable, friends, that joylessness is just as much a sin as stealing, coveting, or lying. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's the command. And if that's the command, then to be characterized by a constant gloominess or moroseness or depression is to disobey this divine imperative. Spurgeon said again, if any of you have taken the gloomy view of religion, I beseech you to throw that gloomy view away at once. Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy 28, 47 and 48. It says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies when the Lord will send against you the, the enemies. Because you didn't serve the Lord with joy and glad heart. Wow. For God's people, united to him by covenant, granted access to him through the forgiveness of our sins by grace alone. For those of us who have so much to be joyful about, we've got to face the facts. Joylessness is sin. Which means the counsel that says, just do your duty and your feelings will follow is a confused piece of advice because joy, gladness, hope, cheerfulness, all of that is our duty. And so we can't 
just do our duty and worry about the feelings later. The feelings are part of our duty. So if God loves a cheerful giver and you give begrudgingly without cheerfulness, well, you've done your duty to give, but you haven't done your duty to give cheerfully. Now, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying neglect your duty to give until you feel like doing it cheerfully. No, it's never right to compound your disobedience because you're in a sluggish frame of heart. Well, I don't feel like it, so I'm going to disobey the command to do as well as to feel. No. Do your duty. Give. Do your duty to serve. But while you're doing it, confess your lack of joy and your lack of cheerfulness as the sin that it is. Ask God to grant you repentance, to give you the heart to do all of your duty with the joy that he commands you to do it with. You see, this doesn't lower the bar. When you talk like this, some people think you're saying, oh, that's just passivism, that's just a quietism, don't, don't obey till you feel like it. No. This is raising the bar. This is saying you haven't obeyed until you feel like it. And where is that going to come from? That's supernatural. That's only the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if I can give a, a summary definition of the joy that we've been talking about here that Paul calls us to here, here it is. Joy is the affection that is produced in the soul when one finds delight, pleasure, or satisfaction in something and then responds with gladness. And I'll say that again. Joy is the affection that is produced in the soul when one finds delight, pleasure, or satisfaction in something and then responds in gladness. Now, how gracious of our God to command us to rejoice, to make delight our duty. I'm quoting Spurgeon a lot, and I'm going to continue to do so because he's just so right on 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 this topic. He says, Come, brothers and sisters, I am inviting you now to no distasteful duty. When in the name of my master, I say to you, as Paul said to the Philippians under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I'm inviting you to no distasteful duty. God commands us to delight. Such then is the command to rejoice. Well, in the second place then, let's consider just briefly the constancy of our rejoicing. The constancy of our rejoicing. We are to rejoice always. Again, literally the command is be continually rejoicing always. At all times and in all circumstances. Say, now Mike, I understand that God commands us to rejoice. As high of a calling that is, I I understand that. Now, there may be some special times in my life that I might be able to attain to that grace-filled frame of heart that you've just described from the pages of Scripture. But to rejoice always? You just don't know what my life is like. You just don't know what I'm going through. Well, you're right. I may not. But the beauty of this, you see, is that I didn't write this. The Lord God himself has laid this standard upon his people. And you know what? He does know what your life is like. He does know what you're going through. And not only does he know what you're going through, but according to his infinite wisdom, he has decreed the circumstances you find yourselves in. And with infinite knowledge and perfect wisdom of those circumstances, he commands you to rejoice always. Now, what that teaches us immediately is that true Christian joy is not dependent on our circumstances. If we're commanded to rejoice always, no matter what situations of life we find ourselves in, then our joy must not be tied to our circumstances. You say, even in suffering and trials and affliction? And I say, especially in suffering and trials and affliction. Think of the mountain of texts that call us to joy in the midst of suffering. We are to consider it all joy when we face various trials, James 1-2. We're to exult in our tribulations, Romans 5-3. To the degree that we share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, Peter says. We could go on and on. And as Paul pens these words, he's well aware that the Philippians had been facing opposition from their pagan neighbors. He speaks of their opponents in chapter 1, verse 28, and the conflict that they're engaged in in chapter 1, verse 30. 
And his repeated calls to steadfastness emphasize this very same thing as well. Why call them to stand firm if there wasn't anything to stand firm against? Of course, they were also tempted to be robbed of their joy when they were worried about him. He was in prison, and they're anxious to know how he's doing. And worrying about Epaphroditus, right? Because they they heard that he was sick, and they were distressed. And so Paul says, i got to send him back to you quickly so you know he's okay. So Paul knows that all of this is going on, and yet he insists that they rejoice always. And it's not like Paul doesn't have any skin in the game either. Remember where he's writing these words from. Again, he's sitting in a Roman prison, chained 18 inches away from a Roman soldier, awaiting a trial before a madman that will determine whether he lives or dies. And while he's in prison, facing all of that, there are rival preachers, professing Christians in Rome, who are aiming to cause Paul distress by preaching the gospel. And yet in chapter 1, verse 18, he says almost defiantly, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, I need to emphasize here that this constant joyfulness to which we are called as Christians does not mean that we shut our eyes to the sorrows of this world. It does not mean that we are to be unmoved by the pains and the troubles of others. It doesn't mean that we're immune to the grief and to the pains that accompany life in a fallen, sin-cursed world. We're not only called to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Paul himself tells us in Philippians 3, 18, that he weeps as he thinks of those enemies of the cross of Christ who have denied Christ by their loose living. I tell you now, even weeping, he says, And so this joy that we're called to be constantly marked by, again, it's not indifferent to the pains of this life. It's not mutually exclusive with a heaviness and a sorrow that inevitably accompanies life in a fallen world. I think one of the most profound phrases Paul ever penned was 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, where he described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In 2 Corinthians 7, 4, he says, I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Amidst all our affliction, I'm still overflowing with joy. I'm sorrowful. I'm sorrowful at the way the world is. I'm sorrowful at the trials that I face. I'm sorrowful that I have to spend a night and a day in the deep. I don't get giddy over being poor and unclothed. But amidst that sorrow, amidst people going to hell, breaking my heart, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israel, I'm always rejoicing, not because my circumstances give me reason to rejoice. But, we'll get there in a second. Before I get there, what's the conclusion and application for us to that point? Even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of affliction, even as we experience the pains of of this life, dear friends, and I know that so many of you have experienced them so much more greatly than I have, and so I say this with trembling, and yet, on the word of God, we are commanded to be joyful, to rejoice always. But you say, how am I supposed to do that? Come on, I get you're telling me my command, you're informing me of my duty, but how? How am I going to do this? Given all that's going on in my life, how can I rejoice always? We've got to recognize that the command is not merely to rejoice always. But look at our text. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. So we've seen the command to rejoice as well as the constancy of our rejoicing. And we come, number three now, to the cause of our rejoicing. We are to rejoice in the Lord. And that little phrase is the essential key to rejoicing always. The only sure, reliable, unwavering, unchanging source of joy is God himself. If you pursue your joy in your circumstances, you will be disappointed because your circumstances may often be unpleasant. If you pursue your joy in other people, you'll be disappointed. Because as much as we love our family and our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ, there will come a time where they will let us down. We are a sinful people, and so we won't be perfect. If you pursue your joy in success and prominence and money, you'll be disappointed 
Because all those things come and go. But if you pursue your joy in all that God Himself is for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed. You will rejoice in the Lord always because He never leaves. He never changes. He never wavers. The Puritan Thomas Manton says, Whatever falleth out, God's all-sufficiency and heaven's happiness are everlasting grounds of joy. The Lord Jesus Christ is to be the source of our joy, the sphere of our joy, and the object of our joy. As Paul sat chained to the the Roman soldier, he was adamant that he was going to go on rejoicing. And that, again, would be impossible if true joy was some sort of superficial, surface-level, phony cheerfulness that came in response to circumstances. It'd be impossible if joy came as a result of just attacking yourself emotionally, just whipping yourself up into an emotional frenzy. Like, Like, be joyful, be joyful, be joyful. Get happy. It doesn't work that way. The source of Paul's joy wasn't the pleasantness of his circumstances. It was the pleasantness of his Savior. He says in Philippians 1, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know joy comes from knowing things. And what is it that he knows? That Christ will even now be exalted, be magnified in my body, whether I live or whether I die. And that, my friend, is where your joy is to come from. Joy doesn't come from fame or power or riches or ease, comfortable lifestyle. It doesn't come from a trouble-free marriage or a better job or this or that human relationship. True and lasting joy comes from the experience of the all-satisfying vision of the glory of Christ displayed to the eyes of your heart. And when you can see him like that, when you can see him as he is, then you can speak like Habakkuk the prophet. In chapter 3, verse 17 of his prophecy said, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord." I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. To rejoice in the Lord, friends, means to experience Him as so precious, to have a real sense of His surpassing value that Paul talks about in Philippians 3.8, that whether I'm free to move about or whether I'm in prison, whether I'm suffering or whether I'm prospering, whether I'm amply supplied or whether there's no money in the bank and all the crops are dead, Whether I live and serve Christ or whether I die and go to be with Christ, the fact that I know Him and see Him and have communion with Him and belong to Him brings me an unshakable and an unalterable joy. It means that I can lose everything in my life as long as I gain Him and be truly happy. So you see, the call to rejoice in the Lord It's a call to the relentless pursuit of our joy in in the Lord and our delight in Him. I had that definition before, and I'm going to particularize it now. True biblical Christian joy is the affection that is produced in the soul when one finds delight, pleasure, or satisfaction in God or in truth about God and then responds in gladness. This is the duty to which This verse calls us. And we're in good company understanding it that way. I'm very, very concerned to make sure you know that I'm not offering some sort of novel interpretation that tries to make too much of feelings and gets all mushy-gushy because I'm just an emotional guy. John Calvin comments in his Institutes that the chief activity of the soul is to aspire to happiness in God. The Puritan, again, Thomas Manton, simply defines rejoicing always as delighting ourselves in God. Spurgeon defined rejoicing in the Lord as being satisfied in God and overflowing with delight in Him. And the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge wrote that one of the essential elements of the knowledge of Christ is the feeling of adoration and delight and desire and complacency that accompanies truth about Him. And so what are some of those truths about him 
with which we're to flood our minds and, and over which we're to rejoice? What are the reasons that Scripture gives us to rejoice in the Lord? Well, more than anything, we have cause for rejoicing as a result of being beneficiaries of the grace of Christ in the gospel. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, hopelessly enslaved to our own lusts and desires, alienated from God, hostile to him as his enemies, powerless to do a single thing to change such a wretched state, and thus headed for the horrors of eternal punishment of the just wrath of Almighty God. And at just the right time, God sent forth his Son, fully God and perfectly holy, to take on human flesh, to be born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He lived the perfect life that we were commanded to live but couldn't live. And he, in taking our sins upon himself, died the death that we were required to die but couldn't survive. The unmixed outpouring of the wrath of his dear father whom he'd always pleased and in whom he had always rejoiced. He bore the punishment for our sins in his body on the tree. And because he did, we trust in his perfect righteousness and his perfect sacrifice to earn our favor with God. And it's by that faith that we trust him that looks out of ourselves and receives freely, which is itself a gift from God. It's by that faith that our sins are forgiven. We are counted righteous in Christ with an alien Perfect alien righteousness. Then we're accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6, and thus we know the adoption as sons. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Heaven is certain. And we eagerly await a Savior, Philippians 3, from heaven who will clothe us with a glorified body that is free from all sin, that is perfectly suited for obedience to God on the new earth. We can joyfully anticipate the eternal pleasures, Psalm 1611, that we are to experience at His right hand. But we also can enjoy on top of all those benefits of salvation, well, this is one of them, that we can also enjoy communion with God at this very moment. We don't have to wait till heaven. Because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf, we have restored fellowship with the Father so much so that we have access to speak with the God of the universe at any time that we desire. We can come confidently and boldly before the throne of grace. We get to know God himself. We get to know him in the immaculate purity and holiness of his nature, in his infinite wisdom and his understanding, in his indomitable sovereignty and in his bountiful goodness. This God who because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is kindly disposed to us, is in control of all things in this life and promises to work them for our good and has the immeasurable wisdom necessary to make that happen. This God is our God. Because of Christ, He is our Father. Behold your God, grace life. And having seen him in all that infinite majesty, rejoice in the Lord always. What could keep you from rejoicing in, in that magnificent Lord always? What circumstance could you find yourself in that changes God, that changes the position you enjoy with God because of Christ? As Paul stood locked in the stocks of the Philippian jail in Acts 16, his wrists and ankles sore from the metal cuffs digging into his bones and his back torn raw from the lashes. At midnight, Paul and Silas, what were they doing? Praying and singing hymns to God. And that was not because they couldn't feel the sting of their wounds. That's not because they didn't know that this world was a painful place, that relationships are broken. That people die, loved ones die, and that other loved ones live in pain. 
It's not because he couldn't feel the pain and the sting of his wounds. It was because he knew that all the stocks and all the lashes that Rome could dole out couldn't alter one iota of who he was in Jesus Christ. And so Spurgeon entreats us, let me invite, let me persuade, let me command you to delight in the Lord Jesus, incarnate in your flesh, dead for your sins, risen for your justification, gone into the glory claiming victory for you, sitting at the right hand of God interceding for you, reigning over all worlds on your behalf, and soon to come to take you up into his glory that you may be with him forever. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus, Spurgeon says. This is a sea of delight. Blessed are they that dive into its utmost depths. This is how you fight for joy. You say, Mike, you tell me that joy isn't merely a decision of my will. It's more than that. It's an affection of the heart. Then you tell me that joy is a a gift and and a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. And then you tell me I have to pursue it. Well, how am I supposed to pursue what's a gift? And it's like this. You don't fabricate or manufacture joy by seeking to manipulate your feelings, by seeking to whip yourself up, like we said before, into some sort of emotional frenzy. You pursue the means by which that gift of genuine joy comes, that fruit of the Spirit comes through means that God has ordained, and it's your responsibility to put yourselves in the way of those means. True Christian joy is the result of the flooding of the mind with the truth of God and Christ and the truth of the gospel, and it's the result of saturating the eyes of your heart with the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. And the inevitable result of beholding that all-satisfying sight is affections of love and joy and delight and satisfaction. So the fight for joy, the unyielding pursuit of joy in the Lord is a fight, first of all, to see If seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ is the fuel of all true joy, then I must avail myself of every means by which that glory is revealed. Say, what are those means? I'll give you five of them. As I try to equip you, dear people, to fight for joy, because it must be fought for. Number one, actually numbers one and two together. They go so closely together that we can't distinguish them too much. Scripture reading and prayer. God is supremely revealed in His Word. And so we must prayerfully meditate on Scripture. Again, and I put them together, prayerfully meditate on Scripture, so that you don't think what I'm saying is just sort of blow through this book like it's the newspaper. But that you think, Paul says to Timothy, think over what I say, and God will give you understanding in everything in one of the letters to Timothy chapter 2, I forget if it's first or probably 1 Timothy 2, 7 or something like that. The idea of think over what I say. Give yourself to the ruminating of these things. For what reason? With a view to seeing and savoring the glory of Christ that's revealed therein. It's so simple, right? Scripture reading and prayer. It's been commended to you so much that you, you know, it seems commonplace, but don't allow familiarity to breed contempt Communion with God through Scripture reading and prayer is the freshest source of the sight of His glory. And how silly we are that we don't avail ourselves of that. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we must maintain contact with Christ by prayer and communion. He says, what fools we are in this Christian life. We depend on so many other things, but the secret of the saints has always been the time they spend in conversation and communion with the Lord and in meditation upon Him. We must maintain that contact. We must go to the source and fount of joy and go there readily and frequently. So the first two means Scripture reading and prayer. Number three, we must also pursue the spiritual side of Christ's glory in fellowship with other believers. I quoted that at the beginning of the sermon in 1 Thessalonians 3.9, but, but Paul exclaims again, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all of the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? You cause me so much joy. How can I thank you? 
because of the progress the Thessalonians had made in sanctification, because they'd been becoming increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, being made to more and more reflect Christ's glory, Paul could see the glory of Christ in them. And that caused him to rejoice in the Lord. That's why the local church, the body of believers, the body of Christ is so important. That's why it's so essential to be thoroughly involved and active in relationships with your brothers and sisters. You can't live and thrive in isolation because one of the means that God means to reveal himself to you is through these other imperfect people that he's molding and fashioning into his own image. And doesn't that give direction to what your fellowship will look like? You know, it's, it's a little bit less than talking about the football game or the weather or something else that was, that's rather superficial. It gives aim and direction that the focus of your fellowship should be on reflecting yourself the glory of Christ, displaying the beauty and the glory of Christ to your brothers and sisters, and seeing and treasuring that glory in them. Not because you worship them, but because they show to you and you show to them the beauty of the God that you do worship. Treasuring the glory of Christ in one another. So scripture, prayer, fellowship. Number four, we must open our eyes to the glory of God revealed in creation and providence. In creation and providence. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. And so look up and look around once in a while. Behold this beautiful creation that God has provided for us to enjoy. And in all the gifts that we enjoy in this life, trace the joy that you find in them back up to the giver, to the fountain, to the source, and rejoice in him. And even in the providences, the circumstances of life are the providences of a sovereign, loving, and good God who is unwaveringly committed to his glory which is your greatest joy. Recognize times of suffering for Christ's sake. Philippians 3.10 is opportunities of unique fellowship with him. And to the degree that you share in his sufferings, again, Peter says, keep on rejoicing. Number five, scripture reading, prayer, fellowship, creation and providence. Finally, fight to see the glory of Christ on the path of obedience of obedience itself. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So keeping Christ's commandments, following him in obedience, results in greater disclosure of the Savior to the eyes of our hearts. He promises that when I forsake sin, and when I obediently follow him, I get to see and enjoy more of him. So fight sin like that, with that weapon in your arsenal. When you're tempted to sin and you don't feel like obeying because sin promises you some sort of fleeting joy, fleeting pleasure, reason with yourself, preach to yourself, tell yourself that all sinning is going to get you is a lust of deceit, uh, something that destroys pleasure, destroys joy rather than satisfies you. And reason with yourself that obedience will bring you a greater and clearer vision of the glory of your Savior, who is the greatest satisfaction that your heart can experience and the only source of true and abiding, lasting joy. Friends, is it your desire to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is that your desire? Do you long for the kind of spiritual stability and resolute steadfastness that Paul not only commands us to, but models in his own life? If so, we must relentlessly pursue our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll close once more with the words of Spurgeon because I don't think that I can improve upon them. He says, So may you feed and so may you drink until you come unto the mount of God where you shall see his face unveiled standing in his exceeding brightness shall know his glory being glorified with the saved. Till then, be happy. 
If the present be dreary, it will soon be over. Oh, but a little while, and we shall be transferred from these seats below to thrones above. We shall go from the place of aching, aching brows to the place where they all wear crowns, from the place of weary hands to the place where they bear the palm branch of victory, from the place of mistake and error and sin and consequent grief to the place where they are without fault before the throne of God, for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Rejoice in the Lord always, Grace Life. Again, I will say, rejoice. Father, we do ask that you would come and confirm this word to our hearts, seal it to our hearts. May it be that your word has convinced your people that their joy is a duty and that it does involve the heart and the affections, that we're commanded to, to be different people as a result of the work that you've done in our lives and that that is impossible without your help. And so, Holy Spirit, produce joy and peace in believing. Would you give us and produce in us the fruit that are called the distinguishing marks of your ministry in us? Cause us to be joyful people. Cause us to be the most pleasant and glad people on the face of this earth, for we have the greatest reasons to be pleasant and glad so much more than the emptiness that this world can offer. Cause us to see and be enticed by the delight in all the means of grace that you provide for us, in reading, in prayer, in fellowship, in observing the beautiful creation, experiencing providence as you give it to us, as you hand it to us from your bountiful hand, rejoicing always that we might obey and see you more. Make us a a joyful people, we pray, for the sake of Christ, that we might show how pleasant he truly is. In his name we pray, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.